You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 116 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is a friend I've known online for many years. Uh, We met on a forum discussing alchemy. And I'm very happy to finally have him on the podcast. And we are going to talk about alchemy, uh, afterlife, God... What is what it's like to uh, be an ambulance driver and uh, many other things. So, without further ado, here is Jesse Fisher. Okay, so thanks for being on the podcast. No problem. Happy to be here. Uh, be invited to talk. So, can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are? Uh, my name is Jesse Fisher. My screen name on the Alchemy Forum is Seth Ra. Uh, I've been doing lab alchemy since I was 14. Started studying and getting into a lot of the spiritual aspects of life and nature when I was a kid. Um, and uh, there's been plenty that have followed my work over the years, and uh, usually are familiar with me on the forums enough they can kind of get an idea of what all I have dealt with or experimented with, uh, and mostly plant and animal alchemy, which seems to be a bit taboo. <laughs> uh, but in the last few years, I've been working in the mineral realm a little bit too. So how did you discover alchemy in the first place? Well, now that's a funny story. Uh, Actually, I come across alchemy itself, uh, funny enough, through anime. Uh, When I was younger, I had to study a lot of martial arts uh, in order to survive. I was constantly getting attacked physically um, by my peers and others. And over the course of time of studying martial arts and developing an interest in Japanese culture and Uh, some of their media, I actually come across a show uh, that dealt with some of the symbolism and processes of alchemy, and it it put the word in my vocabulary, and so I, from there, used the internet and looked it up and started piecing together quite a lot, Uh, starting with some books, actually, from members of the International Alchemy Guild, namely uh, Dennis William Hawks, Sorcerer's Stone, A Beginner's Guide to Alchemy, and Robert Bartlett's uh, Real Alchemy. Those were two of my favorites growing up. So it's kind of like uh, the bully, the bullies gave you a gift. Yeah, uh, it actually really is. It's sort of a, I guess you'd call it a dark night of the soul. Uh, while I was in my homeschool period, what I refer to as my exile period, it gave me a lot of time to study and to think, and because of all of that pushing me in those directions anyway, it put it all in front of me. And now, while the rest of my friends that I've met over the years are full of questions and not a lot of time to experiment and explore, well, life gave me plenty of time to ask those questions and experiment and explore early on, so I'm able to help them now. So do you have like your own lab set up? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've had a lab uh, to my parents' dismay since uh, I started practicing when I was 14. Uh, it started out small, you know, uh, refurbished glassware or repurposed glassware from like, you know, salsa bottles and mason jars and things like that. And uh, having gotten into my own house now, I've got an entire room dedicated to being solely uh, a lab. Uh, it's full of a lot of my ritual artifacts and stuff, as well as uh, just your standard chemistry glassware and a lot of chemicals and materials. And We're still working on getting it completely fixed. Uh, there's some paint job that we want to do to the walls and uh, incorporate some sacred geometry within like the patterns of things, maybe partition different sections of the room for different processes. But all in all, uh, it, it's coming along, especially considering that it used to just be a single table in my room causing quite the ruckus through the rest of the house. <laughs> you live in the southern parts of the United States. Do people in your area, when they see all this stuff or hear you talk about it, consider you to be a devil worshipper? Oh, yeah. I've had plenty of problems with that, especially early on. My parents uh, were raising me early on in a Pentecostal church. Um. My dad was really big on the way people perceive you or the image that you put out. And I'm the kind that, and this is probably part of what got me bullied early on too, I like to express what I'm about. Uh, so I would wear things that would be pertaining to alchemy, um, like garments of clothing that would have the uh, flamel cross on them or things of that nature. And the church didn't like that too well because they considered all of that to be, you know, witchcraft and satanic sorcery and all of this. And my dad didn't like it because of the way other people would talk, especially out in public. But uh, over the years, I kind of forged out my own way and just kind of embraced what I'm about and what I feel that spirit or God has led me to do and explore. So, If you read a lot of the old alchemical texts, they all praise like the Christian version of God quite a lot. So apparently most alchemists in the Middle Ages, they were very Christian. Well, exactly. And that's a lot of what I would point at back in the day as well. But... Uh, I think a lot of it is misunderstanding of both what alchemy is and spirituality and magic in general. Like, for instance, most Christians don't understand that anytime they're talking to God or saying a prayer that they are effectively um, channeling, you know, source energy and crafting a spell. Uh, those two concepts to them seem polar opposite when objectively viewed, though, they're the same. So it's there's a lot of mis. Uh, information and a lack of education on the South's part, just overall. What always amazes me about when uh, Christians have a problem with something is that they don't seem to have read the New Testament because they behave in a way that Jesus said you shouldn't. So it's quite ironic always. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually used to get into a lot of... Um, verbal fights and confrontations with preachers 
because of things like that, they would try to preach dogma that actually, as far as the church history goes, is rooted either in teachings that, that the apostles gave, not Jesus, or in church doctrine that came up after the fact. And uh, they never liked it when I would reference a lot of Jesus' actual words and actions, or even some things in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, as far as like magic goes, people often love to reference uh, the sin of Balaam, and uh, because Balaam, you know, who he cursed was cursed and who he blessed was blessed. He was essentially a sorcerer. But what they don't understand is that he was never, you know, bitch-slapped for being a sorcerer. He was getting reprimanded uh, by the God of the Old Testament because he was trying to go against what, you know, God had wanted. He was trying to push or bully God, and that is just not a smart idea. Um, but that was what his quote-unquote sin was. It had nothing to do with the magic aspect. Uh, no more so than any of the high priests of Israel had any problem performing any of their rituals or consulting their stones or anything of that nature. So, But there again, there's a lot of uh, misinformation and a lack of education on the Christian standpoint, and especially here in the South, because a lot of it ends up being tradition. It's what their forefathers were taught, it's what they were taught, and it's what they teach, and they don't really look into it. And the most irritating thing for me, even with my own parents over the years, has been when I try to explain something to them, and their biggest argument at the end of the day is they're not interested or they don't care. And that baffles me because for these people to be claiming such spiritual devotion to you know God or to truth, how could you not care? But that's where the rift comes in between myself and them. It's also funny because Jesus basically, uh, you know, Lazarus, he made somebody who was dead for several days rise again. That's pretty dark magic. <laughs> exactly, you know, necromancy, that's that's even shunned in our modern magical societies a lot of the time. <laughs> well, it, I guess like with the bullies, your experience with your parents will probably improve your own parenting if you ever have that in the future. Uh, possibly so, Um I just recently got engaged uh, this year, and uh, we're not really looking to start a family or anything anytime soon, but leaving the possibility open, but not really looking for it. <laughs> got too many other things that we got to do and try to do long before that gets started. I know you did a bit of military service, or you had some military experience that I was interested to hear about, because from what I know, you had some problems with it. Yeah, I joined uh, the U.S. Army back in 2012. I went in thinking it was going to be a lot like, you know, the kind of army that my dad went in where we were fighting an enemy, like a real enemy, um, and actually trying to help people. And that's still the propaganda that they sell to everybody, uh, but that's not how it actually is, I found out. Um, likewise, I thought that a lot of the training was supposed to be geared towards breaking down uh, bad habits out of people and, you know, remaking them with better habits, better qualities, you know, making them loyal, um, have some self-respect or some self-discipline, uh, stick up for one another and be a team. What I found out when I got in there 
after I got through basic training, because uh, basic training was great because that was everything that I thought it was going to be. It was hard. It was a lot of combative training and skills and a lot of team building skills. There was a lot of unity that was there within the group. But as training wound down and we started getting ready to go to our advanced individual training, which is for whatever your specific job is, people you know get shipped out and do whatever their contract says they're supposed to do. Um, and it was around that time that some of them, you know, friend you on Facebook and try to stay in touch. But for the most of all of it, I mean, they don't really have a strong sense of unity anymore. They started getting a lot of backbiting and a lot of, you know, gossiping and trash talking. And it got really clickish really quick. And that whole team building thing and unity thing fell apart. And it actually started reverting back to the same way that the people were before they ever entered. And uh, that's just as far as their social team building skills goes. That whole thing failed and it failed miserably. Um, and one of the bigger complaints within the military, uh, especially from NCOs, which are uh, non-commissioned officers for any listeners that aren't aware, um, the problem that they keep seeing that's reoccurring throughout all of the branches and the ranks right now is that it's not what you know or what you demonstrate, but who you know. There's a lot of ass-kissing that goes on. There's a lot of nepotism that goes on. There's essentially a thug or gang mentality that's not built on merit or skill set, but is built on, you know, Joe Schmo over here who is a piece of shit for a soldier. He's not a good team player, but he'll kiss this guy's ass over here that's a little bit higher up. So we're going to promote him because he'll make us look good if we do it. <laughs> and you've got a lot of that kind of essentially uh, political circle jerking going on, and it just it's eroding the morale of a lot of the people that are there, and it's breaking down the system and the structure a lot. Um, a lot of the older vets, in fact, when they get out, they're glad that they're not in anymore just because they see the handwriting on the wall of what it's becoming. Um, and aside from that, there's a lot of, and I don't want to get too much into conspiracy theories per se, of you know shadow governments ruling the world and whatnot, but there is a lot of for real shadow that's in the military especially. I watched a lot of good, like decent human beings that I started out with that by the time we got into the AIT portion, they're like suicidal, they're really dark, and they're not the same person that they were a few months back. And this isn't even from like seeing combat. This is just day-to-day -day operations. I described it once before as there's kind of like a subtle poison uh, or miasma that just floats around the air, and it looks for any crack within each of the individuals. And if it finds it, it just slowly seeps in until it breaks them down and erodes their humanity away. And I watched that happen quite a lot. And the ones of us that's seen that going on and can set back and recognize it, we decided to get out of there as quick as we could. What was your speciality and how did you manage to get out of it? Because I know it's like strict contracts. 
The contracts actually have a loophole to them. The job that I had, I actually didn't even want it to begin with, but I signed up for it because it was either that or go home, and I had already sunk too much money uh, in getting some school credits in order to go in. So I actually had debts to pay off, and I had to just take what they gave me. Uh, The job that they gave me was a 91 Mike, which was a Bradley mechanic. Um, Bradley mechanics... Uh, as the name implies, you, you work on uh, the Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, you get stationed with infantry or cavalry units, and you're basically working on these instruments of death that are going to get deployed and used and to harass you know people in desert countries that have oil. So <laughs> um, ironically, the job that I wanted to do was a 68 whiskey, which is a combat medic. I wanted to be, you know, out there in the field, but I wanted to be saving people's lives and that kind of thing, which is actually uh, what I ended up doing when I got out of there. Um, now I'm a EMT, so in a roundabout way, I kind of got to it. But the Army tried settling me as a mechanic, and the way that you can get out of the contracts actually has to do as long as you're still in the training environments because when I left basic training uh, you're still in training you, you get out of basic and you go to AIT uh, which as I said before is the advanced individual training uh, where you learn your job skill set and you can leave out of there in what they call uh, article 5-17 which basically what you do you go talk to your commander and you tell them look uh, I don't like this. This isn't what I signed up for, and I'm, I'm not happy here, and I want to go. And if you do that in a nice or correct way and your commander likes you well enough to allow it, then he'll send you through or she will send you through getting uh, essentially a psych test kind of done. You, you go talk to the therapist and things like that, and uh, you tell them the same story. You know, I'm not happy. don't want to be here, that kind of thing, and they'll end up letting you leave. The discharge that you get is not an honorable discharge, but it's also not a dishonorable. It's what they call an uncharacterized discharge, which essentially means you weren't there long enough for them to have an opinion one way or the other. Can you tell a bit about your ambulance job? Uh, the ambulance job is pretty fun. Uh, I actually like being an EMT. It's exciting. You get to help your community. Um, a lot of hands-on with the people around. Uh, We get to work pretty close with fire and police. I've actually (laughs) got an application out with the county police uh, simply because, you know, they pay better. In the bigger cities, uh, medics and EMTs and all are paid a little bit more. But in the countryside, like where I am, there's not a lot of money to be had there, even though it's a necessary job. Because, uh, you know, people are always going to get sick and need emergency medical aid or get in accidents or wrecks. But sadly, there's just not a whole lot of money to the job. But for most of us, the money is not why we j- jumped into it. Uh, but it is necessary when you've got, you know, bills to pay and trying to make a family and all. But do you have to have like a medical degree of some sort? You do have to go through schooling uh, for. Basic EMT, which is what I did, that's a single semester. 
uh, cost probably a little over two grand when you're done with like tuition and books and uniforms and stuff like that. Uh, it's pretty simple and straightforward. And what I end up doing most of the time on the truck, because I'm paired up with a paramedic, um, which is as high as you can get, um, I end up driving a lot and helping them once we get the patient and like on scene, I'll help with patient care. And then we load them up into the ambulance. I help them get hooked up on the monitor and uh, act as extra set of hands for the medic. And once they're ready to rock and roll to the hospital or whatever the case may be, then I'll hop up front and off we go. You know, if you have that job in a city, you can like run red lights and stuff. But if you live in a rural area, you you still get to have fun with the driving. Oh yeah, driving is a lot of fun. Um, you you have to be. There's actually a lot of laws that go into play that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. You get to run red lights and stop signs and stuff like that, but you have to do it um, cautiously. Uh, you have to slow down when you come up at an intersection or a red light and you know you got to look you got to make sure if there's traffic that everybody stopped because technically they don't have to let you go um it is a courtesy that they will let you go because you are an emergency vehicle and you are trying to save somebody's life but technically they don't have to um though if there's a cop around they might get in trouble for not yielding to an emergency vehicle. But what it happens is if you come up to an intersection and you've got the red light, if you don't stop, if you just blow through without giving it a second look and somebody, you know, hits your ambulance, well, if you didn't clear the intersection properly, then it's still going to be the ambulance's fault for running the red light. So, uh, you have to be careful with stuff like that, but otherwise, um, it can be a lot of fun and really exciting. Uh, can also be a little bit nerve-wracking and scary when you've got like a critical patient <laughs> on board and you're trying to get to a hospital ASAP. And... You have to be a real dickhead to like block an ambulance on purpose. You know? you know, you would think so, and maybe it's just I've ran across a couple of dickheads. I don't know, but I, I've seen people that have they either just are not remotely paying attention, or they legitimately just don't care. Um, because over here, the way that it works is that if you see an ambulance or even a cop, I mean, you know, fire truck, whatever, if you see an emergency vehicle running lights and sirens, the rule of thumb is to pull over to the right. And if that means pulling off to the side of the road or pulling into somebody's drive, you know, whatever, but you pull off and get out of the way. I've seen so many people that either don't pull off at all. Uh, some have tried to just speed up and stay ahead of us, which rarely works. Uh, others will like break hard to the left, which is a good way to cause a wreck. <laughs> um, it's, it's madness. Uh, people, I think some of them just panic and then others either don't know what to do or don't care. So I think a lot of the civilians, should probably have a refresher driving course every few years instead of just being able to pay the money and get a license renewed. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> Do you have to have a, like a strong stomach? I mean, I mean, have you had experiences where there's been like uh, body parts severed or a lot of blood and stuff like that? 
<laughs> yep. Um, man, in the last ye- little over a year I've been doing this job, I have seen some shit. Um, two of the worst ones, one was a person that their semi uh, had fully blown up. Like it ran off the road and exploded. It was like something off of a movie. And one of them survived and one of them burnt to a crisp. And we had – my boss is also the coroner. So even if they're dead, we end up hauling them at least to the funeral homes or something like that. And uh, I'm the kind where no matter how bad it is, I have to look it in the eyes and face it. So when we loaded up uh, that one, we had to then open it back up on the ambulance, uh, the body bag, to where we could get some photos for the state trooper and all. And in that better lighting, I got a good look at it and just kind of confronted that. And that, that was pretty rough. And these, the most gory one, though, was probably a wreck where uh, this person had been like totally eviscerated from one side to the other. And like intestines and all they're hanging out they bled out all over the road um the face was completely gone (laughs) uh i mean like literally the head was just shattered fragments of white bone and red and we got that loaded up and then had to one of the medics that was with us had to try to draw blood out of the heart um there again for forensics for the state troopers and all that and he couldn't get to the heart uh, because the rib cage and all had been so badly shattered that any the person was basically like liquid. <laughs> um, every time he tried sticking, everything was just moving around. He kept hitting bone. And uh, I actually had to stand there and hold the bag uh, while he did that so that it didn't spill out all into the back of the ambulance and make a mess. <laughs> so. But and there again, uh, just you know, looked it in the eyes, burned it into my brain, and dealt with it. I can I can only imagine because I haven't had those experiences. But I imagine that at least from my philosophy, that I would have more problem, or it would be harder to have a living person that's in real horrible pain or of so, for some reason than just a dead body because it's still only like. The, the shell, you know, like the person is not there anymore. So it's just like flesh, you know. Yeah, uh, you're not wrong there. Um, I kind of, I don't know, this kind of gets into some of my earlier dealings uh, with the spiritual side of things as well. One of my abilities and one of the things that got me into a lot of the occult and alchemy in general, ever since I was a kid, I can see, you know, like demons, angels, shadows, energy, things of that nature to varying degrees. Um, But if I look into a person's eyes, I can like see into them. The problem with that is that I have an affinity for seeing shadow. Uh, So if I look into their eyes, I'll get feelings and impressions and images of some of the worst things that have emotionally or physically happened to them. And so for years, I just kind of, you know, block that out, don't make a lot of eye contact, 
and just try to deal with it. And so then being on the ambulance, you know, these people are live in that moment getting hurt or having been hurt and are trying to cope with it. And one of the first bad wrecks that I was on, the person was still alive and still conscious. And we had to wait for probably 15, 20 minutes for the fire and rescue to cut them out of the vehicle, to cut the car apart so that we could get them out of the vehicle. And the whole time that they're working on it, you know, this is like probably seven or eight at night and it's dark and we roll up on scene, you know, there's lights, it's cold and there's the steady wailings and cryings of this person hollering for help and yelling of how bad it hurts and please God, somebody help me, it hurts, you know, and it's just like, okay, you either learn to block it out and just ignore it, or it pricks your heart and you just break and crumble right there on scene. So uh, having years of experience of blocking out shadow and emotion uh, when it's not beneficial to me, I was actually able to handle that pretty well. Um, and I guess I kind of consciously removed all of the emotion and just started kind of objectively looking at the scene, including objectively uh, observing how I was reacting to it because I knew that I wasn't allowing myself to feel in that moment because I couldn't afford to do that. So instead, I was just listening to it and taking note that that was going on while trying to pay attention logically to everything else on the scene. And uh, sometimes that's hard to do, um, and that particular one was actually fairly easy for me to do. Uh, even had to drive about uh, 30, 40 minutes to the nearest hospital that could deal with trauma uh, with them hollering the whole way and uh, running lights and sirens the whole way. But sometimes it will blindside me. Uh, for instance – Usually, if we go on scene, I expect there to be family. I expect there might be a crowd. You know, So you walk on scene, you're expecting to hear the emotions of other people. So you've already got um, defenses and you know, mechanisms in your mind and heart set up to just block that and you know, do what you need to do. Well, one night we knew that our other crew was going onto a code. Um, which uh, I think everybody knows what a code is, but if they don't, um, it's basically they're unresponsive. They don't have a pulse. You know, we're doing CPR trying to get them back, um, and that most of the time doesn't work, so they end up dying. But sometimes it works, and that's why we do it is for the times that it will. So we knew that this person uh, had coded, and they were about 20 minutes away from us. And even if they called for LifeLight, which is the you know emergency medical helicopters, they're 20 minutes out too. So we knew this was probably going to be a DOA or dead on arrival. So we asked the other crew, though, if they wanted us to help them, and they said that they had it. About an hour later, they called us wanting lift assistance at the funeral home. Well, that seemed easy enough. Apparently, you know, the patient was just – 
heavier than what the two-man team could lift on their own, so they just needed some assistance. And at this point, it's like midnight because uh, we work 24, sometimes 48-hour shifts, occasionally 72-hour shifts. Um, so I had just woken up uh, and went out to meet them at the funeral home, and when I drive up, there's family on scene. Well, I wasn't expecting family to be there, and they seen uh, the patient who had, in fact, of course, died, and it was a trauma incident, so it wasn't, you know, pretty at all, and the family is wailing and hollering and crying, and I wasn't even expecting family to be on this particular kind of scene, and it just emotionally cut me. And I had to just quickly throw up those barriers and ignore it. And when I got back to the station uh, and crawled back into bed, I ended up actually uh, messaging my fiance and just kind of <laughs> breaking down to her and ended up meditating and falling asleep while I meditated and kind of cleared it all out. And, you know, sometimes you just have incidents and scenes like that. But there again, you just have to deal with it and try to reconcile it and move on. As the, as the people working in the ambulance, do they ever find out if the person they brought to the hospital made it or if they saved some lives? A lot of the time we do try to find out stuff like that. Uh, it depends really to what extent of damage is done. The hospital that's in our area is not for like trauma or stuff like that. It's kind of a small hospital. So if we bring somebody in because they're either not hurt that bad and our hospital can treat them and send them home, we'll find out about it. Or if they are severely critical, our hospital can you know, make them relatively stable enough to where then we can send them out to a specialist hospital that can deal with it. And we typically try to find out whether or not that worked, whether or not they survived the trip, stuff like that. We had one um, not too long ago that was a bad code that me and my uh, medic partner for that day were running on, and we worked CPR for over three hours. But we had an amazing doctor on, and she actually got the patient back, got them relatively stable, um, and they flew the patient out to a specialist hospital to try and fix the actual problem. We weren't sure and didn't really think that the patient would survive at all the actual flight over there. But we did find out later on that the patient had survived the flight. Um, I keep trying to find out information as to whether or not the patient lived after that. Um, so far, I hadn't been able to find out, but Typically, we attempt to because a lot of the hospital staff knows other nurses and stuff at the other hospitals, and they'll try to give us good news if they can. But you mentioned your your father, like was it was important for him how people viewed you, how you dressed, and that. But you must be pretty satisfied with you having this job because that's nothing to be ashamed of. In you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, uh, my dad's actually um, supportive and really proud of me. It's just when it comes to like alchemy and all of that, he doesn't understand it. And it's hard for him to understand it because it's not how he was brought up. It's 
it's just not how he understands things or has ever experienced the world. He's kind of actually scared of spiritual things, and he doesn't understand really the true extent of history as far as how a lot of our sciences and whatnot have come from or come about. So his biggest problem is just that he doesn't understand those kind of things. But as far as being proud and supportive, especially of my current occupation, man, uh, <laughs> he's just as happy as he can be. <laughs> like, is there ever like a situation where, I mean, you you can't do it, but like, you know, you come to a scene and maybe the, you know, maybe the, the murderist or the rapist is lying there injured and you still have to help them? How do you block that out? I mean, you, you know, you have to you have to look at everybody as you don't care who they are. You help them anyway, you know. Right. Well, and that's exactly it. Um, as an EMS professional, it's not my job to decide whether or not this person is a criminal or whether or not this person is the victim. If they're hurt or injured, it's my job to treat them. It's the cops and the lawyers and the judges and all of them to decide you know, what this person is or not um, as far as innocence or guilt or crime level or anything like that. Um, in fact, we've got some that we call frequent flyers or regulars that are basically druggies. They're, they're drug seekers. Um, But if they call us and they appear injured or they appear sick, it's not for us to decide that that's what they're trying to do so much as it is us to treat them and look and see if we can find anything medically wrong with them. And if so, we'll treat it. If not, then, you know, <laughs> let the doctor send them home. But there can be like, there must be some dilemmas because like you come to a scene and there's like two people injured. One is like, some old man and then there's like a seven year old girl and you go who do you go to first like you would probably go to the girl first maybe well the medic see it's it's actually all done in such a way to where if it's what we call an mci or multi-casualty incident then we'll triage a scene and with two patients uh like you just said in this scenario The medic would look over a patient and either send me or you know whoever their partner is to go look over the other one because there's always two people on an ambulance. Um, so they'll either split and go evaluate them and then work them, especially if there's police or fire on scene that can act as an extra pair of hands. Or um, the two will triage together and the medic will look at the first one see if they're stable enough, leave the uh, driver or partner with them, and then go to the next one and see. And then they'll make the decision as to which one's more critical or not. Um, if one's more critical than the other one but can be saved, then the critical one gets priority. And they'll either call another ambulance or another crew to come pick up the second one. Or depending on the extent of the injury or what it might be, You could technically haul two in one uh, if you needed to. But did you say that you were planning to uh, become a police officer? Um, I've got applications out, and I've made some friends over in the uh, sheriff's department that I'm, I'm looking to joining them. Uh, they pay a lot better, but they do a lot of the same, except instead of medical, 
they do a lot of just general assistance and, you know, trying to keep people in the county safe. Um, they know a lot of the people in the county because they interact with them, just, you know, check in on, especially some of the elderly people. Uh, some of the police will routinely just check on them and see how they're doing and stuff like that. Um, police vary from state to state, from county to county, city to city. They're not, some of them are, you know, dicks on a power trip. Um, the ones that I'm wanting to work with are not. Uh, the county ones in the county that I work in are actually really good guys, and they l actually care about their people because they – I live in Escambia County, which is one of the most southern Alabama counties, um, is right next to the Florida-Escambia line. I go about 40 minutes – north into Connecticut County, and that's where I work at. And a lot of the people that are in fire, rescue, uh, police, EMS in Connecticut County grew up there. Some of them, you know, come from other places, but everybody that's there likes the people, likes the area, and is actually, you know, concerned with and cares for the people in the area. So... Having seen many films about the police, uh, don't you think it could be a risk that it is like you said in the military about who you know and ass kissing and like it's more of that mentality, at, at least from movies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it very well could be to an extent. Um, there's always a bit of politics that goes on. I found that no matter where I've worked and I've worked at a myriad of jobs over the years, there's always some level of politics that goes on. A person's personality tends to decide whether or not, you know, they can kind of get along with everybody or if they're going to ruffle some feathers, whether they need to ask kiss or not. <laughs> um, there probably is from what I've heard, there probably is still a good bit of that, even in that County. Um, I don't think it's as bad as, say, the one that I live in. <laughs> I would not work for the one that I live in. Um, but I don't think that I would personally have too much of a problem with it. And the big difference between local police and, say, military, local police are all about you know, where they are. They're about the people in their area, in their community. They know those people. They know the area. You are looking after your people, your land, your area. Military, you're not. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going into other people's countries and terrorizing them for your federal puppet masters to make a quick buck while you're still getting barely crumbs. And that's not cool. Um, to some extent, I almost wouldn't have much of a problem with the military if they were actually getting what they signed up for. You know, everything in life is a Ouroboros. We fight over resources. We uh, cause death in order to create and sustain life. That's just part of the cycle. If you're going to sacrifice a group of people, then 
it should be done to benefit your people. Otherwise, you literally have no qualm with them. That's not how the empire of America currently is working. Instead, you're sacrificing you know, groups of people, including your own, and your own aren't seeing any of the perks of it. You're screwing over your own side just so you can make a quick buck. And that's all the politicians are doing. It's all these would-be leaders are doing is throwing everybody that they can onto the fire heap for their own self. And that's not what the soldiers signed up for, um, which is why a lot of them get disheartened with it, especially if any of them get injured and see what kind of health care they're going to end up getting. Uh, the VA is absolutely horrible. Um but I mean, there's no benefit to the military as far as what their actions are causing. All benefits and proceeds are going to the ones who never have to fire a bullet or see you know, any kind of actual fighting. Um, they're safe and secure on their private jets and islands. Uh, meanwhile, as far as here at home, actual you know, police and law enforcement, if you're – in the South, if you're in the rural areas of the South, you don't hear a lot of you know people storming the streets and cities getting burned down and riots and looting. Um, about the only place I know of in the South where that's occurred in recent times uh, was years and years ago with Hurricane Katrina. People in New Orleans looting and killing each other. Um, but the majority of the South, you don't have that kind of problem. Uh, and you don't have police being total dicks all of the time. Uh, I've gotten stopped by the cops over the years for everything from a broken taillight to uh, speeding, and I've never had any trouble with them. Usually because, you know, I'm polite, I'm respectful, uh, I cooperate with them. I try to understand where they're coming from when they stop me, and I know. That if they've caught me actually doing something, you know, illegal or wrong, well, I'm just going to have to own up and pay for it. <laughs> what we have really badly in this country, especially in some of the larger cities, isn't so much a police problem or a violence problem. What we have is a group of entitled criminals uh, thinking that they should be able to do and say whatever they want and it have no repercussions. And they won't afford the same kind of treatment to the ones that would be prosecuting them. So there's a lot of double standard on that end that goes on. And we don't have that in the South, uh, probably because we're quick to shoot people. <laughs> I, I'm kind of kidding there. Um, <laughs> but uh, nah, it's, it's not that bad over here. That's why I liked war in the old days, uh, because then the the person who decides to go to war is usually in the war, like you know Alexander the Great or Hannibal or Caesar or whatever. They're always in amongst the troops, uh, fighting and making decisions. And uh, it would be fun if it was like that today. I mean, then in in the, if it was like that today, then uh, Russia would have an advantage because I could I could see Putin on the front lines commanding soldiers, but I couldn't see like. Uh, um, Donald Trump, you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, if we did things like we did back in the old days, Russia would probably have control over a lot of the world. Um, but I mean, from what I hear, Putin's got really high approval ratings, so you know, how bad can he be? Um, <laughs> as long as you're a company, man, what's the problem? <laughs> But and there again, you know, like you say, back in the old days, there was also that whole notion, like what they talked about in that movie uh, Chronicles of Riddick. That whole "keep what you kill." Your soldiers are out there, you know, risking their lives and leaving their homes. They get uh, rewarded for their effort and for their actions. And what we have in this country right now, um, and I think in a lot of the world, as far as the Western places go. There's not a lot of reward for that. Instead, it's just fat cat politicians and people that are already billionaires just making more profit and fueling both sides of the wars just so they can keep everybody chasing their tails. Yeah, they, it's like also in the old days, the wars were more like somebody's trying to take your homeland so you defend it. Or, uh, But those kind of wars don't exist anymore. I mean, it is quite a peaceful world, really. So most most of the wars now are not really real wars, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. Because um, they're not really so much interested in taking land, per se, as they are in either causing uh, political distractions for the public to keep them enslaved, to keep them from seeing the hands behind the scenes, or simply to stage strategic uh, entry and exit points of resources from the land. So they can devastate a country and take what they want from it without ever having to actually occupy it or, um, you know, settle it or have responsibility for the outcome of it. You know, you just go in there, burn it down, take what you want and leave and let whatever remnants left try to rebuild it and go in and do it again later. And frankly, it's kind of fucked up, but. I think a lot of the peace that we see in the world isn't real peace. I think it's um, apathy and stagnation. I think it's people that have been bred to not question a whole lot and to just accept their lot in life if they're you know, in one of these more peaceful places and not really bat an eye too much about the ones that are – unfortunately not in the peaceful places that are getting bullied and beaten up and shot at and having everything raped and pillaged from them. Uh, but we've just got a lot of stagnation and a lot of distraction. I think distraction is probably one of the worst things that the Western people have going on, or at least the American people have going on. I can't really speak about the rest of the West because uh, I've not really been there. But from what I've heard from some, it seems like there's a big problem with distraction and just apathy to all of it. They don't really care as long as it doesn't bother them. Yeah, it's also funny where you have these people who, you know, they they think they do something good, but they're also supporting something bad at the same time. So it's it's also, I guess, a kind of like apathy of sorts. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, just like right now, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm currently Skyping with you via my smartphone, which is a, you know iPhone. 
And uh, a lot of the minerals and metals that all of our newer technology is made from is mined with, you know, child labor in, you know, impoverished third world countries. <laughs> so we don't mean to support that, but our active consumerism just passively does. And that's why we should always mention it, which we did now. So it's, at least people are aware. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um But yeah, and there again, you know, everything's Ouroboros. I uh, I don't like the fact that people are being mistreated and killed for what is, in essence, stupidity or greed. Um, but at the same time, uh, I alone can't stop it. Uh, it's going to take a w awakening of a large, large group of the population. Um, and from everything that I've seen just in this country over the course of this election year, these people are so far from waking up to what's going on around them that it's not even funny. Um, I think 49% of the people didn't vote. So, I mean, maybe there are some that are realizing that it doesn't matter and that it's just a game. But there are so many that are still so hellbent on their two-party system and their factions and their sides and fighting with one another instead of seeing who's pulling the strings of both sides. I mean, they literally just can't see it and they refuse to see it. And as long as the world's going to keep doing that and they're going to keep refusing, uh, my philosophy then becomes to, you know, make use of the Ouroboros. If they're going to keep sacrificing them, then don't let it be in vain. Try to use it and try to use it to help others uh, see what's going on. So like you said, you know, we mentioned it. We try to put it out there for people and that's, that's all we can do until they all band together. I want to ask you also, how, how do you see uh, everything from the spiritual perspective? I mean, how do you think there's reincarnation or, or heaven and hell or how do you see God and all this, all this stuff? Ooh, that's... Um... It's tricky. Uh, it's very interesting. It's very tricky, though. I've had numerous experiences and interactions with uh, different entities. Um, earlier, I had mentioned, you know, that I've seen shadows and demons and stuff since I was a kid. I've also been helped by, I guess you'd call them angels or God, um, in dealing with a lot of those experiences. It was never you know, just me or just myself. Uh, we're never alone. There's always help out there. There's always friends and allies out there. Um, from as far as the reincarnation thing goes, my view on that's kind of really tricky because with everything being, you know, an Ouroboros, with everything being part of the same thing, there's different levels of experiencing Everything. There's different realms. Uh, up or down the ladder, as it were, is just – it's kind of the same, but it's also a little bit different in each place or each time. To me, it's kind of scientific so that there's no destruction of anything. Like you can't destroy matter or energy. All you do is change its form. So if a person dies or um, – a pet or whatever. If you if you kill anything or something gets killed, it doesn't die. It doesn't really go away. It just changes form. 
So uh, from what I've experienced with that, the consciousness of it, um, the actual spark of that particular conglomeration of vibrations that made that being or that entity uh, may shift to a different uh, realm of being, uh, much the same way that the material construct that made it up or the body uh, breaks down and shifts into varying different forms or ways. I think that they have a habit of going to different places throughout uh, the realms. I don't really think they stay stagnant in one or the other, no more so than we stay stagnant. Uh, so I don't think that they necessarily, you know, just go to heaven and that's it or to hell and that's it. Um, nothing is stagnant. Everything's always moving and vibrating together. Um, I think they're just, they're there, but in a different way. And my experiences with seeing different entities or even experiencing different realms I don't necessarily, I guess you'd call it astral traveling. I don't do that a lot or on command. Uh, I've done it a few times. It happens when it happens. My experiences with seeing that kind of stuff have shown me that a place that I might consider hell, uh, where I've met a couple of family members at, it was a barren desert landscape. The sky was black, very celestial, um, like there was no lights except for distant stars and, you know, cl what looked like fairly close by planets and that kind of thing. Uh, but it was a barren, desolate wasteland. And in place of trees were essentially static or stationary electrical cyclones, uh, which I thought was really interesting. But the first person that I had met in that particular realm was actually a cousin of mine that had committed suicide. And where she was actually stood out from the rest of the place because it was a garden. And she was actually trying to tell me some stuff that was correlating to the lab work that I was doing at that time. And this was all, you know, years ago. But, um... It was interesting to me because she seemed, when I looked in her eyes, she seemed wiser. She seemed smarter um, than what she was while she was still alive in this realm. She seemed to have an awareness of where she was, and this garden that we were in was like her creation. And it kind of reminds me of that um, Paradise Lost quote where they say that the mind is a place and it can make a hell of heaven or a heaven of hell. So, you know, she kind of seems to be doing what, if you were to look at it linearly, progressing. So she went down a notch to this desolate kind of realm, but was working her way up because she understood, she learned, she progressed. And so it seemed like she was moving up to something else. Um, likewise, uh, the only other time I've seen that realm was with my... Uh, grandfather on my mom's side, my mom's dad. Um, he died several years ago. And this past uh, Halloween, I had a little vision thing where I saw him in the same kind of realm, but it was different. 
it was like a projector screen where he was projecting his home here in this realm into that one. But it was an illusion. It was hollow. It was empty. Where the garden that my cousin was in actually had substance and she was, you know, moving and doing things. And in that realm, that stuff was real and solid. This illusion that he created was a lot just kind of like a projector from his memory of what he wanted it to be like. But instead, he's in this, you know, barren wasteland, um, apparently wrestling with what his life had been um, because – and there again, you just have to know this particular guy, he was a racist piece of shit from the word go. He was a KKK clan member. He was, ironically enough, a uh, Pentecostal preacher. Um, he was quite abusive verbally and physically um, to my mother and her brothers and sisters. And I mean, he was he was a shit human being, and. Uh, I, for one, did not weep when he died. But in this desolate wasteland of a place that he was in with this cheap, hollow projection (laughs) of what I guess he wished it were, um, he did give one clear message, which was that he was sorry. And that kind of struck me. Um... Because he was—he never apologized when he was alive here. He never said he was sorry to my mother for anything, even when he was in the wrong and uh, had actually beaten her when she was a, a kid still and living with him. Uh, he ha- jumped to a conclusion about something that he thought had happened, and he beat her for it. And when he found out that she had told the truth and that that hadn't happened— Uh, He still didn't apologize. He just said that, you know, if she kept on, he'd do it again. Um, But now, I guess, being in that particular realm, he learned some lessons, and he was actually apologizing. And the funny thing was that when I then talked to my mother about it uh, a couple of days later, uh, she had had almost the same identical (laughs) experience um, with the same message of him apologizing. So, you know, they say around uh, Samhain or Halloween that the veil thins between the realms, which is usually when I start getting those kind of visions and messages. And I wasn't alone in that one that particular time. Uh, Now, whether or not he's going to necessarily reincarnate as another human being, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen a really good evidence of that kind of reincarnation, uh, so much as genetic memory, um, the energy and matter that made them up cycling back around and at some spiritual subconscious level giving indications or memories of what it once was and things of that nature. Uh, I think that's probably more accurate of what happens. Um, Aside from you know, something gathering up enough energy to attempt maybe possessing somebody and (laughs) taking over that way. Uh, But as far as just natural flow of things go, I don't think. uh, I've not experienced anybody that actually fully, you know, reincarnated as a person or anything else that I'm aware of.
it would be interesting to visit the brain of somebody who on one hand is like a preacher or a believer in Jesus Christ and then also a clan member. I mean, how can, how do they justify their own, I mean, I don't understand how it fits together. It's, it's uh, baffling to me. Ah, uh, man, I, I don't understand either. It's, it's a lot of propaganda. It's a lot of hate. And really, I think it's a lot of fear. Um, I grew up watching Star Wars, and Star Wars has uh, been a good kind of philosophical thing for me and my friends for a while. And one of the most true sayings that always rings out loud to us is what Yoda says of fear leads to anger, anger leads to hatred, and hatred leads to suffering. And I think from the generation that he was brought up in and from what was probably instilled into him from his parents, um, I think they were just a very heavily fear-based people, which even if you look at the kind of preaching and the kind of biblical narrative that they taught, it was mostly fear-based. Um Years ago, myself and another member of the forum were kind of having a discussion, I think, about this, um, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And I think he pointed out that in some of the more appropriately translated uh, texts from the original languages, that rather than it being the fear of the Lord, it should be the awe of the Lord, like to stand there and be in awe of just how awesome and, you know, amazing such a being, such a system is, um, that that is the beginning of wisdom rather than, you know, fear. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, it's been translated into fear, and that's been used for a lot of propaganda um, of political and just personal kind of ways, and it's sad. And it's really sad that they never seem to have there again, understood it or cared enough to understand it. Yeah, that's interesting because many, many years ago when I was more spiritually immature, I had a very vivid dream where, because God to me has always appeared in energy form. And uh, I had a dream where this energy came to me and it was the most fearful dream I ever had. I, I woke up screaming and then... Only like a year ago or so, I, I, I had the exact same dream. But this time when this God energy light came, I was in complete awe. So in a way, I guess I understand the translation problem because fear and awe are very similar. I mean, if a proper experience, a, a real awe experience can also be quite scary. I agree. Um, and it's funny you should mention that. I've seen God in various dream vision states um, at different times, and I've also uh, met and experienced other entities, um, what I, I call them archons, um, and not in like a negative sense, but in like they're an epitome of a certain frequency of power. Um, the Druidic or Celtic god Cernip. Um, supposed to be like the green man or the horned lord, the lord of the forest and animals. Um, from the way that I've understood him is that he's, if you take all of the, the life force of all the trees and all of the animals 
and you take all of that energy and form it into a humanoid-ish sentient singularity that is the archon that is Cernus. And uh, whereas God itself is, you know, everything, the entirety of the universe, all of creation, just a singularity, a singular Ouroboros, but whose energy and consciousness and everything, because it is everything, is also spread out within everything. So it's everywhere all the time. Um, I've had different ones where I've met that particular being, uh, the, the God being, in different forms. In some of the dreams or visions, he's completely pricked my heart. Um, there was one that I had where I explicitly uh, wrestled with him because I didn't recognize who it was until I had him by the throat and looked into the eyes. And when I looked into their eyes, I understood because it's like it flashed through my head just rapid. I looked into it and knew who this was. And with that realization also came this emotion from them of why are you doing this? And it just like cut me. And uh, because, you know, the violent history that I had, especially growing up, um, it left a lot of unresolved kind of anger and a lot of uh, dealing with a lot of pent up emotion. Uh, and stuff like that over the years uh, really kind of initiated the healing and the letting go of that. Um, which was, you know, it's literally like healing through divine love. And then several years ago, I actually had one similar to what it sounds like you experienced, where I at first was seeing glimpses all over the world of lights in the skies and things like that. And I understood that these were different energy forms. Forms, uh, both light and dark, clashing and colliding, um, as the energies of you know people are helping be vessels for these different things as they're manifesting and moving and you know a spiral throughout the universe and the world. And it ended up putting me on a mountain in Jerusalem at night, and I was looking over the dome of the rock, and there was this giant. Um, orb of just white light. It looked like a star, but it was just kind of hovering there, and it looked at me. It didn't have a face or anything. It was kind of like an eye of Sauron kind of thing, where when it, I I knew when it looked at me because its gaze was light and just this bright white light, and it penetrated my entire form like glass, and it was terrifying. Um, it scared me to the core. Uh, it knew every single thing about me, things that I would hide, um, things that I felt that I tried to repress or let go of uh, and maybe didn't do such a good job of. Um, <laughs> uh, anything that I had ever been ashamed of, ever, it knew it. And as it gazed through me, it brought it all to mind. And it it struck me as being a very, like, Luciferian light. And, in fact, that's what it felt like it was telling me that it was, was that it was, you know, Lucifer. Um, and it was just a very cold, penetrating, 
terrifying experience. And I woke up from that little state and was like gasping for air um, because for a while there it was like I, it wouldn't let go of me. And then when it did and I come out of it, I had been struggling to breathe apparently. And I was rattled then for a good week. But I kept meditating on it and kept thinking about it and remembering it. And more and more that I you know, reflected on it, I understood it. And the more that I understood it, the more I realized that the only thing that made it so scary, the thing that was spawning the fear, wasn't because, you know, this thing was lying or was dark, but because it was so right. The truth of what it was shining and revealing that the ego <laughs> doesn't want to face. And that's what made it so terrifying was that I wasn't wanting to face what it was showing. And so as I then meditated on that and began to reach out to that same energy and recognize within myself the different things that it had shown and kind of rectify that, it no longer felt scary. But instead of feeling like, you know, the devil himself had just ran me through, uh, it started feeling more and more like I had actually been touched or blessed by God. Um, which is funny there too, because uh, even the term to bless uh, in the English, I believe, comes from the Germanic, which means to anoint with blood. <laughs> so there's still this notion of pain and sacrifice, uh, even with a blessing. Um, and this was basically, you know, a kind of spirit death and also resurrection of the same. Well, uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. Like I mentioned in my intro, I got to know Jesse on a forum about alchemy that I've frequented for a decade now. And recently we published a book, some of the members in this forum. And if you check the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com, you can find a link if you want to get hold of this book yourself. It is a book about alchemy, of course. And now we're going to listen to a song called Emo Kid from the album So It Goes by The Number Fox. You can check out more of their music at thenumberfox.bandcamp.com. And I'll post all the relevant links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com as usual. And uh, finally, as always, don't forget to like the Facebook page and follow the podcast on Twitter at Born Alchemist. Freedom is in the mind. Every single night I cry out my eyes But let me be clear I don't mean with tears I don't wanna see Myself in the mirror I am too ugly Can't I disappear Every time that I feel up Just 
Hit the ground, that was mine. 